All right, please take your seats. We can continue on these conversations after this morning's service. We're going to read God's Word together um, from John chapter 14, verses 12 to 14. Turn there with me in your Bibles. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Paul, for reading God's word to us. Uh, just a warm welcome back to Ben and Kristen Taylor. Uh, who've been overseas in the States, Kristen, yes, and woo-woos, that's good. Um, Kristen's administrator here at Coomer Baptist Church, and oversee uh, kids and youth, and it's a joy uh, to have them back, and uh, you will all be happy to know I did, em- we emptied the office bin the day before Kristen got back, so um, it's, it's just to make sure we're on the right page. Well, we, um, we got a big, uh, small passage, but big work to do this morning, so I'm going to pray, and we'll jump into it. And um, uh, also just sending greetings from Acts 29 churches uh, around Australia, Japan, Philippines, uh, this Asia-Pacific region. Uh, They're encouraged by the way that God's grace is at work amongst us. They're eager to hear how the church is going, and uh, these other pastors and and ministry leaders have greatly encouraged at God's grace uh, at work amongst Coomera Baptist Church. So uh, from all those churches, they send their love to us. So uh, let me pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll jump in. Father, what a glorious and grand text that we have before us, and we would pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would speak to us through it. Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we are not, would you make us? And what we have not, would you give us? We pray for your name's sake. Amen. Um, I think the the passage we're looking at today, um, I think it's written to perhaps address two, two problems that, that we may be experiencing in our culture today. Um, they're linked, but there is a distinction between them. The, the first problem is, is really just a, a, a kind of confusion about the, the work that God has given us as His church to do, and the confusion leads to a kind of indifference or ignorance in the life of Christians. And so we would become a Christian, but just kind of carry on living life how we were before, not realizing and not recognizing that we've been given new work to do uh, as followers of Jesus. That's the first thing, it's the first issue, clarifies that. The second problem, I think, um, is related to that when there is misunderstanding about the works that Christians are to carry on doing, um, we end up kind of filling the blank with what we think those works are, and we start to determine what they are based off our own preconceptions. And so, um, you've, you've got a passage like this, where I think there is a profound misunderstanding and overemphasis from this text particularly about the pursuit of miraculous signs and wonders. So the thinking goes like this, if, if Jesus' works was through miraculous signs and wonders, and if we as His followers are to do the works also like Jesus does, Therefore, we ought to also be pursuing miraculous works. Not even just the miraculous, but greater miraculous works than what Jesus did. So, listen to how the the Passion Translation, which to be clear, is not an orthodox translation of Scripture in any sense, it translates this passage like this. I tell you this timeless truth, the person who follows me in faith, believing in me, will do the same mighty miracles that I do, even greater miracles than these, because I will will go to be with my Father. Now, a a reasonable person may be quick to discern that there has not been, nor will there ever be a person to do the same mighty miracles that Jesus ever did. No person has crossed the Tasman on foot, uh, no water has been turned into wine at, at, at weddings. Uh, now, whilst there are, have been recordings 
both in Scripture and historical accounts of those being raised from the dead, none have been dead for more than four days like Lazarus. We have in the book of Acts, the, the miraculous signs and wonders performed by the apostles do not exceed Jesus' miraculous signs and wonders, nor in church history do we have any record of someone doing signs and wonders greater than what Jesus did. And yet, there is a groundswell or a continued obsession with the pursuit of signs and wonders as the normative expectation of the daily Christian life. So much so that one prominent church in 2019, their vision for the year was the presence of unusual miracles. Now, about you, but if it's a miracle, it's unusual. We don't need to qualify that's unusual miracles. Well, what I want to do from this text is set our sight much higher and much greater than the simple pursuit of mere unusual miracles. I want to see this um, in the text. So I want us to see the work Jesus has given us to do and then the way we are to do it. The work we've been given to do and the way we are to do it. We'll look at what these works are. Secondly, what are these greater works? And then thirdly, the power to fulfill them. And stay with me because we're going to be in John having a good time. As we recall the context, we're in the farewell discourse between John 13 and 17, where the narrative has slowed right down so we can take in the significance of what is being said by Jesus. We are in the room the night before Jesus will die to atone for sin. And Jesus is pouring out his heart to his disciples. As you saw last week, they are troubled by Jesus' words. They've been told there is a betrayer in their midst. That's troubling. Jesus has uh, said that he's going to a place where they cannot follow. That's troubling. And then Peter pipes up to show his devotion, but then to realize he'll have his denial exposed. That's troubling. So Jesus gives them comfort in the words by saying, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. He spoke about the future home in heaven he's preparing for them and the confidence that he will indeed lead them there. So Jesus' absence from them will be better than his physical presence with them. But with his physical presence gone, it still raises some question that they require comfort. So it's not hard to imagine that. Imagine a CEO of a startup company for three years calls a staff meeting and tells everybody that he's going away and the whole thing, um, and, 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 and he's going away. And so the question might be, well, if you're leaving, does this mean we're all done? Does this mean the work we've been focused on is all gone? Does your departure mean our jobs is lost? Uh, uh, we've given up everything to follow you, Jesus. We've left everything behind. And if you're going, you're leaving us behind? Is it all over? Would they have to go back to fishing? Would Simon go back to being a zealot, political campaigning and lobbying? surely Matthew couldn't go back to being a tax collector with his tail between his legs. So, so maybe they're thinking, even if we do go on, how on earth can we actually go on without our leader? You've been our strength. You've been our source. If you're gone, I mean, we're just 11 duds. We're just a ragtag bunch of people. They need comfort. We'll enter Jesus' comforting words. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Jesus' care and consideration is expressed in the words, truly, truly. He's bringing profound truth to bear upon them. He wants them to listen into what he's saying. Dear friends, I'm giving you my dear words. By believing in him, friends, the work is not over. In fact, greater works lie ahead. So what are these works? I've said before, we shouldn't be quick to assume that we know what these works are. Um, if one option means miracle signs and wonders, if the only option means miracle signs and wonders, then we do run into some issues. Well, I'm being very nuanced when I'm speaking now. I'm saying it can't only mean signs and wonders for a couple of reasons. Firstly, this promise, you notice, is given to who? Whoever believes in him. Now, while some commentators want to like reduce the scope of the application of Jesus' words to only apply to his apostles in an attempt to retain the miraculous works that they will do, the phrase, whoever believes in me, means whoever 
all people in all time who put their faith and trust in Jesus. So John 6.35, he says, whoever believes in me will never thirst. John 7.38, whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John 11.25, whoever believes in me, though he shall die, yet he shall live. So he's speaking to all believers, whoever believes in him. He's not speaking to an extraordinary class of Christians. He's not speaking to particularly mature Christians. He's not speaking to particularly theologically rich Christians who now get about the work of Jesus. He's speaking to average repentant sinners like you and me. We get to be about the works that Jesus did. I wonder, do you know this morning that you've been given work to do by Jesus? He's promised that you'll carry on His works. You may be a teacher, you may be a nurse, you may be studying, maybe a business owner, a raiser of children, a manager of the home, may work in an office or on a job site. But you've been given other work by Jesus. You've been given work by the most important person who has ever lived. Uh, you look for examples about important people giving you work, and I think in Australian culture, we just don't have too much esteem for important people, so it's kind of hard. Um, you used to say, if the, if, if the queen gave you a job, that would seem quite important. Well, if the king gave you a job, you think that's quite important. Well, friends, the King Jesus has given you work. He's given us work to do. So he says, get amongst the work. And if this work then is for all believers... Well, we know from the broader teaching of Scripture that not all believers do works of miracles. Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 says this, he says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. He goes on to say, Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? His point and answer is, no, not everyone does that. Not all work miracles, not all possess gifts of healing. So this promise by Jesus isn't saying that all believers will perform miracles. Now let me be clear. What I'm not saying is that the experience of miraculous works has necessarily ceased. The Lord in His compassion and His divine providence may so well so very well choose to work supernatural miracles amongst His people today for His glory, for the edification of the saints, and for the advancement of the gospel. He may so work miracles to bring about healing. He may so work supernatural acts as He sees fit. And if there be occasions, listen to me, pastorally, if there be occasions, or if you have desires to petition the Lord to work in miraculous ways, particularly in the area of healing for sick ones, petition the Lord. When my friend's nephew is diagnosed with a disease that, that gives him maximum six, 12 months to live, I am praying as if I'm believing God will and can do miraculous works. So pray, ask, petition, and trust Him to hear your prayer, to either give you the grace of healing or the grace to accept it if healing doesn't happen. But what this text is not saying, that the only meaning for the works that we must do is that every believer is to perform miracles. So what does John mean by works then? If you've known me for a little while and you've experienced a bad situation around me or you've gone through a bad situation that's not too terrible, you would have heard me describe the situation by saying, gee, that, that's a bit Pete Murray. And as I've said bad situations of Pete Murray, people have asked, why Pete Murray? And I'd reply, oh, you've seen better days. Song by Pete Murray, his song, Seen Better Days. And so quite regularly, I will say, oh, it's Pete Murray, Seen Better Days. <laughs> Their shoes are falling apart, but Pete Murray. Um, someone's doing something dumb, it's Pete Murray, whatever that is. And so they ask, how do you use that word? Well, how does John use the word? When John uses the word works, in some contexts, he clearly includes miracles. He clearly includes miracles. There's a list. I won't go through them all. Um, you can ask me later. Yet there are occasions when John says the works that Jesus did is, is more broader than miracles. So take John 6, 28, 29. When asked by the crowd, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So the work of God is believing in the one whom He has sent. 
Then again, John 8, 39, Jesus exhorts the Jews to do the works of Abraham. By all accounts, Abraham didn't do any miracles. And so Jesus must be referring to Abraham's good deeds, so faithful obedience. And then in the immediate context of this passage, look at me in verse 10, Jesus' words are referred to as works of the Father. John 10, 14, 10. The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. So words are works, obedience to God's way is works, and being brought to faith is works. Therefore, we don't want to restrict the meaning of works to simply signs and wonders. Not least to mention, when John wants to explicitly refer to the miraculous signs and wonders, he has a word and it's called signs. So what else helps define these works? Well, the phrase, the works I do, only appears one more time, John 10, 25. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. So whatever these works that we carry on, they are bearing witness to Jesus. It's the same function in verse 11. John Piper helped me see this connection with greater clarity. Look at verse 11, just before verse 12. Believe me that I am in the Father, and that the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So there is something about the works that Jesus does that will help to lead people to believe in Him. When a man is proposing to a woman with words saying, I love you, he has the ring showing the works that he does. There is something about the quality of the works that is helpful in believing the words. Does that make sense? Works help point people to see Jesus more clearly. Jesus is saying, verse 11, essentially, take my words, take my works, add them together, and may that lead you to belief. Just as my works helped lead people to belief, so all of you, in a similar manner, which, as we'll see, is empowered by the Spirit, you will also lead people to faith. Whoever believes in Jesus will also do the works that lead people to faith. So the works function to bear witness to Jesus. Now, what I don't think this means is that someone's going to come to faith because you didn't drink a beer at a party. But I think it does mean that the identity of Jesus is clearly seen by the way his disciples love one another. John 13, 35. As people believing in Jesus and as they're united to him, as they carry, they will carry on works that point people to faith and belief. Compassion, acts of service, humility, character and conduct that is distinctly Christian help people make sense of the message. During Red Frogs, which is a youth support organization, it helps safeguard schoolies. Um, schoolies don't make good decisions generally. Um, who, 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 else start, who makes good decisions when you're 16 to 18 um, and potentially have copious amounts of alcohol you're not used to in your system? And in that environment, the, the red frogs are there in the name of Jesus to do good works, and it creates so many opportunities to talk about the good name of Jesus, to support it. Or think of compassion. Compassion Australia, releasing poverty in the name of Jesus. It's a good work, distinctly Christian, and what it's doing is trying to help point people to believe in Jesus, a good king who rules justly and fairly and has a heart for the poor. That's what a Christian's life ought to be about. We are to carry on the works of Christ. We are to magnify the Father. These disciples aren't going to go back simply to their old jobs, are they? Just like when we become Christians, when you got saved, you're not simply going back to your old job. You've been given a new job, new works with a new boss that you do alongside whatever you do that earns a living. You're not just a teacher. You're a living witness to the person of Jesus. You're not just a student. You're positioned to conduct yourself in such a way that makes sense of Jesus. You're not just a parent. You're situated to help these little ones behold the Lamb of God. Do you see? It's Monday morning. You're on your way to work. What are you to expect? What works are you to expect to do this week? Well, you are to carry on living as the light of Christ. You're in a stressful situation. You have a new worker at school, and you work in the office. You've been offended by someone. You've listened to someone's problems. You're facing loss and disappointment. You've been wronged and hard done by, and you're needing to respond in God-honoring ways. In all these scenarios, we are to conduct ourselves as believers. 
with such works that help lead people to see Jesus more clearly. The old phrase, people don't care what you believe until they believe you care. Well, don't just take me at my word. Look at my works. Look at my life. Friends, we, we live lives to help people make sense of Jesus. That's the works that we carry on doing. Conversely, then, we don't want to be doing any works that would hinder or lead people away from Jesus, would we? We don't want to be living lives, we're going to get in this next week, that would be disobeying Jesus' words and therefore doing the kind of works that aren't good but rather evil. We don't want to do that. We don't want, to, we don't want the sum total of our works to point to us, our life, our success, our future. We want them to point to someone beyond us. That's what we do. We do the works that lead people to, towards Jesus. But the text actually gets so much better than just doing those works. Because it says you will be actually be able to do greater works than these. So what are these greater works? Well, I think this is where it does get it gets exciting. Hearing that you would imagine the disciples for a moment. Jesus is leaving. He's just told you, hey lads, you're gonna carry on doing what I'm doing. Oh, and by the way, you're gonna do greater things than I did. I'm not sure what your heart's like. But when I hear that, I'm provoked to insecurity. I'm provoked to insecurity going, what? I can barely live up to the works I've seen you do. You think I can do greater works than what you've done, Jesus? I, I'm just rooted with insecurities. I'm thinking, that, how's that going to be possible? So what does Jesus have in mind? Well, I don't think Jesus is referring to greater in terms of sensational signs and wonders, as if one could qualitatively do more supernatural signs and wonders than Jesus. Um, if that was the case, have we seen anything greater than the raising of a man from the dead for four days or telling the wind to stop? Friends, Jesus' life and his signs and miracles in particular were written and recorded by John so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. There is uniqueness to his life. Such signs are explicitly about revealing the identity of the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God. And such miraculous works that Jesus did. There's a high watermark which we will not exceed. I think one writer is right. If we, re- if, if we think and have an obsession with the pursuit of the miraculous, we end up diluting what the, the way the Bible talks about the miraculous. One writer says this, is far from healing the crippled, curing the ravages of disease and raising the dead. It seems the focus of the Holy Spirit's healing ministry today is limited to rheumatoid arthritis, nagging back pain, and other subjective ailments. No longer is his work dramatic, obvious, and undeniable. Today it's mysterious, indiscriminate, and surprisingly absent when and where it is needed most. Friends, does God's Word invite us to bring all requests to Him? Yes. Does that include back pain? Yes. Does that include arthritis? Yes. Anything, come and bring it to the Father. But we do not want to dilute the Bible's definition of miracle. And so dilute the way Jesus points to himself as the Messiah. We might say it's a miracle if the Gold Coast Suns win the premiership or even make top four finals, but the Bible wouldn't call that a miracle. Similarity, we can thank God for all things, even things that might seem peculiar to us and our broader brother and sisters. We can thank God that a, a person's leg gets an extra inch or that stomach pains go away. But it may, not fit in, it may not fit necessary in the category of miracles. We don't want to diminish what Christ did, and we don't need to. Sadly, people who want to name it and claim it, or its lesser version, I've prayed it and asked God for it, and I should have it. Sadly, this can then lead to unbelief, a wrong calibration of the expectations of the normal Christian life, pastorally. I've seen the damaging impact this on people's life. People have walked away from Jesus because they were sold that they should and ought to be doing miracles daily, and that they should and ought to be seeing people healed around them if they just had enough faith. Pastorally, it's, it's, a, it's a train wreck. And to be clear again, I'm not denying the presence of supernatural miracles, either in operation today or throughout church history. 
If you really want to find out the broad sweep of recorded miracles, a guy called Craig Keener has written a two-volume book. It's over a 1,000 pages long from the Acts of the Apostles and through church history. And he concedes that maybe not all of these were, were, were true, authentic accounts, and there may be other explanations, but there are lots of them that God in His province can do that today. What this text is saying is that this is not to be the normative experience for every Christian. So, so this greater works isn't greater in miraculous signs and wonders. So what is it greater than? What greater works? Well, maybe it's greater in scope, greater in quantity. There's one of Jesus, there's 250 of us, there was 11 of the disciples, so it's like, hey, greater in number. Simply to say more. More people in more places, spreading more words, doing more works, than the God-man bodily contains Jesus of Nazareth. Now, whilst that is true, Peter preaches at Pentecost, 3,000 souls get saved, that beats how many people follow Jesus. A greater work, perhaps. But is it simply greater because it's spread further? Are you and I doing works here in Australia, not Palestine? Does that necessarily make our works greater? I think if John wanted to say greater as in quantity, as in more, I think he would have used the word more, which he's got a word for more, but he doesn't. He uses the word greater. So what's greater? Once again, you ask, hey, John, when you use the word greater, what do you have in mind? Every time John the writer is using the word greater, he's referring to greater in quality. It's a qualitative element to it. So for instance, you get in John 19.11, he refers to the greatest sin, that the Jews' sin was greater than that of Pilate's because they delivered him over, qualitatively greater. Or John 15, 30, greater love is in laying down one's life for a friend, greater in quality. Or a servant is not greater than his master. Again, it's qualitative. And in fact, seven times when he's using the word greater, he's applying it to something extraordinary. Do you know what he's applying it to? He's applying the greater work is eternal life. The greater work is eternal life. John 4.12, he describes that the great, yeah, he is greater than Jacob because whoever drinks of the water that he gives them will well up to eternal life. He's greater in John 1.58, John 1, describing the apex of the cross where Jesus is the gateway to heaven and eternal life. He's testifying in John 8. 53, that he is greater than Abraham, for if anyone keeps his word, he will never taste death. That is eternal life. Why is Jesus greater? Because qualitatively, he comes to bring and give eternal life. I think the clearest place that connects works and greater works is, is in John 5.19. If you want to turn with me there, you can. John 5.19. So saying, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing. Listen to this. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may all marvel. So in character and conduct, Jesus has been doing works. And in this context, he's just healed a man miraculous work at the pool on the Sabbath, but now he's going on to describe there's greater works that you'll see. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So greater works will be shown to Jesus by the Father, which will involve giving life, and bringing judgment. How does one go from death to life? How does the Son do this work? Look at me in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Jesus is saying to his disciples, you will not only do the works that I do, but you'll do greater works. The greater works is believing, seeing people believe the life-giving announcement of the Son. This happens as people hear and receive Jesus' words and believe in Him. That's how they receive the greater work that moves them from death 
to life. There are works that we do that support and point to belief. Then there are words we speak which actually have the power to bring about the belief itself, the faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. How does this life-giving announcement of the Son do the greater work? Well, come with me back to John 14 in our passage in verse 12. Jesus is saying, greater works than these will He do because I'm going to the Father. So what is it about going to the Father that makes these greater works possible? Jesus here is speaking in shorthand for what He's going to tease out in longer form over the next coming chapters. In 16.7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go, the helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus going to the Father is the trigger point for sending of the Spirit, which is what you get in Acts 2.33. specifically says, After Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God, he received the promise of the Holy Spirit and poured out that which you both see and hear. Jesus' ascension is connected to the giving of the Spirit. Friends, greater works are possible after the outpouring of the Spirit. John 15, 26, it's the Spirit who bears witness about Jesus, just as the disciples are going to bear witness about Jesus. The disciples who have received the Spirit are going to be able to impart the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus based on Jesus' death and resurrection and see the greater works take place. Now, the way to the Father for Jesus was the path of the cross. So up until now, catch this, up until now, no person had their forgiveness of sins based on the finished work of the cross and the empty grave. All salvation throughout history had been this anticipation of what would eventually occur. It was faith in this coming Messiah. But since Jesus has returned to the Father and sent the Son, salvation is now based looking back to the finished work of the historical fact of Jesus atoning for sin. So part of the reason why it's greater is because it's clearer. The work is clearer. It's not speculative. It's certain. It's not partial, but it's complete. They don't simply know of a coming spirit. They actually have the indwelling spirit in them. The time location itself doesn't make them greater, but the implications of being able to announce the finished work of the cross and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to dwell in believers' hearts is so much greater than what had gone before. They see more, they receive more, they have more, they know more. One writer says, the message you will preach will be the message not of a promised ransom, but a paid ransom. Not of a future payment for sin, but a finished payment for sin. So what are these greater works that all will do, all who believe in Him? Well, we will receive the Holy Spirit of the crucified and resurrected Jesus. And in that resurrection power, which the world had yet not seen, that power dwells in us. And as we announce the life-giving message of Jesus, we are these instruments for God imparting forgiveness of sins through the gospel message. This is greater than any, any of Jesus' earthly miracles because this is what he came to accomplish by his death and resurrection, forgiveness of sins. Do you see? All his miracles are pointing to him. But then Jesus did that work, he died and rose again. It's the ultimate sign. Friend, you know what's more powerful than being able to walk on water this week? If you want to try it, do it in a safe place. If you haven't tried it as a believer, it's worth giving a crack just to see and remind yourself of your finitude. You know what's more powerful than being able to walk on water this week? Is actually if you were to walk over to a person and so share the gospel and see them repent. Can we all agree, as the baptismal tank's going to watch that soon, if upon hopping in the baptismal tank, Kayla kind of stood on top of it, we would all be pretty amazed. We ought to be. But you know what's more amazing than that? Is that Kayla's heart was once dead and now it's been made alive in Christ. We're going to witness the truth of the greater miracle that's taken place. Water walking is amazing. Turning water into wine is amazing. Calming storms is amazing. But friends, we have the finished work of Jesus to announce the life-giving power of the gospel. Think about the qualitative difference between the most extraordinary miracle Jesus did. You ready? Resurrection of Lazarus. Think about that in contrast to the greater 
work of spiritual life to a dead heart. The difference is exponential. One lasts but a few decades, one will last for eternity. One temporarily escapes judgment, one secures a positive judgment forever. One gives momentary blessings, one secures eternal blessings. One may provide an opportunity to be reunited with loved ones. One secures adoption in God's holy family for eternity. One gives an option for further advancement and status in life. One gives a kingdom without end. The greatest miracle ever done by Jesus in his earthly ministry is eclipsed by the greatest works that we get to do now in announcing the message of the gospel. So friends, I want us to get amongst the greater. I want us to get amongst the great works. Yes, conduct your life in a Christ-like manner. Yes, walk in the good works that God has prepared beforehand for you to walk in. Do them so that the light of Christ may shine and so that all may glorify the Father. Yes, do those works, but even greater works testify to the life-giving message of Jesus. Remember several years ago, I had a conversation with a guy over lunch. He's trying to figure out some questions around Christianity. And as we're talking and as we're, as we're, we're conversing, stuff just is kind of bouncing off him. He's got arguments and he's got explanations and, and he's trying to get his head around what's happening with his heart and with Jesus. Somewhere in that midst of that conversation, something changed. All of a sudden, the, the same words and phrases that I'd mentioned only an hour and a half ago He's now telling me like they're new information. He's now telling me, see, did you know I can be forgiven for anything I've done? See, something has happened. I think in God's kindness, this guy passed from death to life before my eyes. I was able to be witness God's precious kindness upon me in seeing the greater works take place. Friends, as we hear of the gospel message, people will actually move from death to life, from judgment to eternal life with God. I don't know how exciting your nine-to-five job is. I don't know how, like, thrilled you are to get amongst that work this week. But, friends, you are invited to be part of a greater work. And it's not limited. Of all the great places you can think about visiting in this world, young guys, young girls travel, and then there's that dip period, and then you get older again, you travel, but just less thrill-seeking things is going to cost you. Of all the great places you could go, of all the great food you might try and taste, of all the great experiences you hope to have, friends, I hope we can see that we have been empowered to carry on the greatest work of seeing people step from death to life. We're going to see this next week that you're not alone in this task, but rather been given a help of the Holy Spirit. Because, friends, if we didn't have the Holy Spirit, can we just, if we actually get what Jesus has told us to do, this is brilliantly overwhelming. I can barely handle a you know, sharp knife and a hot pan. Jesus just said, you've got a life-giving message, go about it. Thankfully, he gave us the Spirit. And this is what leads to what's next, and we'll conclude here. He says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus is going to talk about asking the Father, bringing prayers, petitions before him. Uh, two more times in this discourse, and so we're going to tease them out in greater extent there. But the big idea is that these disciples who need reassurance that they're going to carry on the work, that they're not empty-handed, are given a direct supply line from God. It's, it's interesting that uh, a friend phrased it like this. He said, the good works and greater works will be, be accomplished by the Spirit in and through prayer. Jesus is since he's heading to the ruling and reigning right-hand side of the Father, he can distribute his resources to whatever kind is needed. He's infinite in power. He's infinite in willingness. So consider who's saying what he's about to say. This is the one who can calm storms. This is the one who can heal the blind. This is the one who can raise the dead. This is the one who has raised himself. And he is saying, what you ask, I will do. He's in a position of power. He's in a position of prominence. He is amply supplied in riches and resources, things he asks we will do. And so when you look at the book of Acts, what do you see happening? You see people, the apostles, carrying on the work of Jesus. But you know what's happening before Pentecost and the Spirit's poured out? What are they doing? They're gathering in the upper room, and what are they doing? They're praying. They're praying. Any supernatural work of conversion is often just preceded 
in prayer. The Apostle Paul, this powerhouse in the New Testament, seeing conversions, seeing churches established and planted, seeing miraculous signs and wonders support him and around him. What's Paul always doing when he writes to churches? He's saying, brothers and sisters, would you pray for me? Would you pray for me? Would you pray that an opportunity for the gospel to go out? Hey, would you pray that the word of the Lord would speed ahead? Hey, would you pray that it would be strengthened and sustained? And then when Paul's writing to the churches, what's he always doing? He's letting these brothers and sisters know, hey, by the way, I'm praying for you. Remember how I told you about everything amazing that's theologically true of you in Christ? Yeah, now I'm going to pray that God would bring that about. Because prayer is the means through which we see the works fulfilled. When churches are feeling timid, they pray for courage. What happens? They boldly proclaim the gospel. When they're being persecuted, Paul's praying they would persevere to hold up under the pain and strain of living as a Christian. The way that good works and great works will be fulfilled is through by the Spirit, in and through prayer. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Now, is he saying that whatever I ask, he will do? There's a few Brisbane Broncos fans who think that the Lord answered their prayers on Friday night. But no, I don't think it's saying that whatever you ask without distinction, he will do. And can we just agree that we don't want God to answer yes to every single prayer we've asked him? Do you know how many people would probably have their cars off the road if I prayed, Lord, bring that person justice? Could you imagine if the Lord answered your 15-year-old prayer for the, for the, for the loved one, the, the girl or the guy in the other class, and he, and he said yes, and that's who you ended up marrying? Isn't it amazing that God is infinitely wiser to answer our prayers according to his wisdom. And Keller once said, once we get God's sovereignty in answering our prayers, God answers our prayers in ways that we would answer our prayers if we knew what God knew. So we ask in his name. And so it's not a magical incantation in the name of Jesus. Saying in the name of Jesus louder and more times doesn't make it more powerful. Sometimes we may need to do that in our own heart and our own soul because we're trying to remember the reality of the one we're depending on, so it's okay. We have to criticize people who say it twice or say it louder. But in His name is, is things that accord with Christ, with, his, with who He is, His teachings and His character. Later, asking and receiving what God gives is, is connected to abiding in Him, to, to, to doing the will of the God. So there's these qualifiers so we want to pray in accordance to Him. We want to say, God, we, we want your mission to advance. In your name, there's this prayer. God, would you answer these prayers? We want to see the glory of God go forward. What kind of prayers would you ask if you were to conduct yourself like Christ this week? What kind of prayers do you need in your life as the people you relate to? Prayers for humility, compassion, prayers for service. What sins are you trying to put to death that you're asking and pleading, Lord, I need you to help me Sanctify my heart. Lord, I need prayers for selflessness, to not grow weary in doing good, to seek to show hospitality, to get my eyes off myself and rather onto others. Because there are countless situations of varying types, we can rest assured that Christ gives us whatever we need to see his name glorified and his mission continues. So come and ask, come and ask. Our focus is the glory of God, glory of the Father and the Son. So I think when we get this, sometimes we can pray, Lord, I'm praying, change my circumstance. But more than that, Lord, I'm asking, would you help me to conduct myself in a God-glorifying way in this circumstance, which if it was up to me, I wouldn't have. Make me look like you, Jesus. If you can't take this away, take away anything that is not Christ-honoring, Christ-glorifying, sanctify me. Did you know God's answering yes to that prayer every single time? He's doing that work in our hearts, sanctifying us. We trust Him. There will be times when we ask, pray. You might say, Darren, but I've been praying for a while and it hasn't happened. That's true. Sometimes the Lord's answer is yes. Sometimes it is no. And sometimes it is later. And we need to learn how to trust Him.
prayed for 17 years. It's a good story. It ends up, ends up really nice. From a brother. He got baptized end of last year. Keep praying. Keep praying. George Mueller. Came, a guy came to him who was ministering in a town, and the father said, I've got six sons, I'm praying for them, they're not yet converted, what should I do? And Mueller's advice was, continue to pray for your sons and expect an answer to your prayer, and you will have to praise God. It's amazing, six years later, he returns to the town, and he meets this man, and the man has earnestly given himself to prayer. And the happy results is that two months after Mueller had left, back in 1876, five of the man's sons had come to faith. And the six was also seriously thinking about making that commitment. Praise God. George Mueller himself, in his own journal, he writes this. He's praying for a small group of men for over five centuries. Sorry, five, half a century, five decades. <laughs> the preachers elaborate, greater works, yeah. Five decades. In November, he writes this in his journal, November 1844, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day without a single intermission, whether sick or in health or on land or on the sea and whatever the pressure of engagements might be. Eighteen months elapsed before the first of my five was converted. I thanked God and prayed on for the others. Five years elapsed and the second was converted. I thanked God for the second. And I prayed for the other three. Day by day, I continued to pray for them. And six years passed before the third was converted. I thanked God for the three, and I went on praying for the two. He goes on to say, these two remained, uh, remained unconverted. The man to whom God in the riches of his grace has given 10, so this is a writer now writing about this, sorry. The man to whom God in his riches of his grace has given tens of thousands of answers to prayer in the same hour or day in which they were offered has been praying day by day for nearly 36 years for the conversion of these individuals and yet they remain unconverted. But I hope in God. I pray on and look for the answer. They not yet get converted, but they will be. Those two men, sons of a friend of Mueller's youth, was still unconverted when he died in 1897 after having prayed daily for their salvation for 52 years. His, air, his prayers were answered, however, when both men came to faith in Christ a few years after the great intercessor's death. Greater works, spirit in and through prayer. No wonder William Carey would say, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Expectations involve prayer. I wonder as a thought experiment for us now, what would it be like in front of you if the, the prayers that are in line with God's name were kind of answered with a yes and then displayed in front of you? Imagine your big wide open field and all your prayers that you've been asking for, people to come to Christ. Imagine it's an answered yes. I wonder how many souls and saints would fill that field. As I thought about this more, I thought this would be a joyful thing, the Lord answering yes. And so I did this thought experiment and realized that field wouldn't be as full as I would desire. Because it would show how limited my prayers are. How few people I petition heaven's doors for. How seldom my offerings and asking of God for dependence and reliance to do that which only He can do in and through my life. And so I want to come and I want to say, I don't want it to be small. I asked Dawson the other day. He's into his numbers at the moment. I said, Dawson, what is the greatest, biggest number you can think of? He's, he's ah, a, a million and, and ten. I said, oh, that's pretty big. He's like, yeah, his little coy face. I said, can you think of a number bigger? And he's gone. He said, ah, a, th a, th a thousand hundred million. And 10, I said, oh, that's pretty big. And he's like, yeah. I said, hey, can you think of a bigger number than even that? So now he's just, he's just getting anxious. He's, he's like, what are you thinking? And so he's like, 
a hundred thousand million thousand hundred and ten. I said, well, that's enough. That's big. That's big. The biggest number he could think of is still the smallest prayer in relation to how infinitely powerful and able God is. And if he's saying he wants to answer and give us what we need, give us the desires as we pray in accordance with them. Does anyone in the room just want to pray a little greater prayer this morning? Does anyone just want to head home and petition the Lord for salvation? Friends and family, for the nations. Japan is 0.25% Christian. Let's pray. Let's ask. Let's see what the Lord will do. J.C. Ryle says, how is it that many true Christians have so little? How is it that they go halting and mourning on their way to heaven and enjoy so little peace and show so little strength in Christ's service? The answer is simple and plain. They have not because they ask not. They have little because they ask little. They are no better than they are because they do not ask their Lord to make them better. Friends, this morning, I wonder if we would pray as a means by which we will see the works of God carry on through our lives and indeed greater works than these. These words are a great encouragement, I hope, and a great challenge. They're a comfort because we're reminded we're not alone, but they're a challenge because if this is true, then we have a great duty to be men and women of prayer. But don't let that overwhelm you. Come to Him in your meekness. Consider Jesus who comes near and intercedes for the poorest and neediest sinner. Consider Christ who lends His ear to you, the one stuck in sin, stuck in self-centeredness, stuck in un- situations you'd rather not be in. His ear is for you. He sits at the Father's side and He wants to give you His strength through His Spirit. Consider Christ who has already condescended to walk amongst us and whose now Spirit resides in us. How much more will He give to you to help us in our need? If you're not a follower of Jesus today, can I tell you something really interesting? Did you know that we as a church have been praying for you? We may not know your faces, we may not know your names, but we've been praying for you. We've been asking that God in His beautiful, beautiful glory and splendor would reveal Himself through His Word to you. That you, in light of seeing who He is, would realize your need as a sinner to be forgiven of sins. But that Jesus has made a way for you to be forgiven. That you can be restored in relationship to your Heavenly Father by turning from those sins and putting your faith and trust in Him. And if you do that, you will step from death to life by the power of the Spirit. You will be the greatest miracle, the greater works that takes place this side of the outpouring of the Spirit. I want you to know that this morning. As a church, do we believe that we'll do greater works? Let's get about it, and let's pray now that God will do it through us. Let's pray.